welcome to the Northwestern Undergraduate Law Journal Speaker Series. Hello and welcome to the Northwestern Undergraduate Law Journal. My name is Jamie and I'm the Founder and Editor-in-Chief of the NULJ. Today we are here with Professor Cypher Cost, a James Monroe Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Virginia Law School. He is the author of Imperial from the Beginning, The Constitution of the Original Executive, and The Living Presidency, an originalist argument against its ever-expanding powers. Professor Prakash, how are you doing today? Doing great, Jamie. Great to be with you and your uh, viewers. Great. Um, so let's get right into it. Um, I guess the biggest question is, how is the executive role now different from how the founders originally imagined it? It's a great question, Jamie. So as you mentioned, the first book, um, Imperial from the Beginning, describes the original presidency in great detail. And uh, sort of the, the big picture uh, conclusion is that the presidency was quite powerful at the founding, far more powerful than any previous American executive, more powerful than governors of the time, and more powerful than even the Continental Congress, which was a plural executive. Uh, and so the president had authority over law execution, had a, a, a residual authority over foreign affairs, uh, and had control over the mil military in the sense of being the topmost officer in the military. Um, but the presidency was hemmed in by several constraints. He had to faithfully execute the laws. He only had a check on the making of laws, meaning he couldn't make laws himself. So he couldn't suspend the law. He couldn't you know, ignore the law. In foreign affairs, he couldn't make treaties without the Senate's consent. He couldn't spend money in foreign affairs without Congress. And then in, in wars, uh, he needed Congress to declare war first. So that's the original presidency in a nutshell. And then the, the new book, which I have right here, hold on, uh, The Living Presidency, and I encourage your, your viewers to get it. Um, operators are standing by. The new book describes the modern presidency and it describes how presidents have acquired additional powers. And so what have they, what have, where have they acquired authority? Well, as many of your, uh, many of our viewers will be aware, presidents now uh, claim authority to start wars on their own authority. That is to say, they, they assert that the constitution lets them start wars, lets them attack other nations. That's different than, than from the founding. Uh, at the founding, if you attacked another nation, you had declared war and the grant to Congress was read to be exclusive. So the president basically has a parallel power to declare war by starting a war on his own say-so or her own say-so. In foreign affairs, the president um, now has far broader authority to conclude international agreements uh, without the Senate's consent, either by making them himself in so-called sole executive agreements that never gets sent to the Senate, um, or by um, using something called a congressional executive agreement where uh, presidents send a treaty to the House and the Senate, and if it passes by majority vote, the president concludes the international agreement. And that's a way of bypassing the two-thirds requirement in the Senate. And then the final change is the president's um, you know, relationship to law execution. We don't think of the president as the chief law enforcement officer. People say that's uh, true of the attorney general. Instead, we think of our president as a policy innovator. Um, and that view of the president as a policy innovator 
I think has corrupted the sense that the president's supposed to execute the laws. What do I mean by that? Modern executives uh, twist and pervert and, um, you know, misread statutes to advance their um, re-election goals, but to also advance their policy goals. Right? That is to say, if they think something is very important to them, either politically or uh, otherwise, they're willing to misread statutes to accomplish those ends. And, you know, that's, that's happened across several administrations where presidents adopt aggressive readings of statutes to either to narrowly construe them or to expand them um, to, to suit their needs. And then I, I, I would say one more thing. I think the conception of the presidency is radically different. Um, the, there's, a, there's an idea that if presidents repeatedly do something, um, it changes our conception of the presidency. And that is descriptively accurate, but it has, a, uh, it has the effect of greatly expanding the presidency in the sense that uh, presidents are able to create practices more quickly than Congress or the courts and are therefore more adept at changing the office. So that was a long answer to a great question. So how can Congress react to this and enforce the separation of powers if the president is acting unilaterally in a way that Congress may not agree with? So the, the, the problem that Congress faces is that um, the rise of party politics um, renders 40 to 50 to 60% of Congress uh, unwilling or unable to thwart the president. What do I mean by that? Well, if you're a Democratic legislator in Congress and you have a Democratic president, you are less willing to stand up to the president. And the same is true for Republican legislators and a Republican president. And so although you know the, the, the founders talked about ambition counteracting ambition, as I discuss in the living presidency, sometimes ambition is furthered by presidential ambition, right? You get what you want policy-wise by presidential unilateralism, right? So suppose you favor a wall and you can't, the president can't get Congress to fund the wall. Well, if the president just funds the wall by, by diverting funds, you get your wall. Suppose you want to subsidize insurance companies uh, in the wake of Obamacare and Republicans won't fund it. You just say that you, you've got authority to, to fund these insurance companies. And if you're a Democrat, you want that because you don't want you know, the, pri the price of private insurance to skyrocket in the wake of Obamacare. So the problem has been that members of Congress um, aren't thinking of the long game. They're only thinking of the short term. In the short term, sometimes presidential power grabs um, favor their policy perspective, and sometimes they don't. And, and in the book, I argue most members of Congress aren't going to be presidents. Most of them are going to be in Congress, if at all, if, you know, if maybe they'll lose election, but their, their highest office is in Congress. And they ought to adopt a long-term perspective, one that doesn't just focus on, do I like what the, do I like the policy implications of what the president has done? And I think if they do that, they're more likely to stand up to the president and say, you're uh, acting improperly. I think that's a, that's a that's a that's necessary at a minimum. Obviously, you then have to do more than just say the president's wrong. You have to be willing to act upon it. Uh, but it's that it's that adoption of a sort of a partisan perspective that has unilaterally disarmed Congress and prevented it from standing up to uh, the 
power grabs of modern presidents. So you've talked like a little bit about partisan, how the like parties play into it. And I read um, in one of the interviews that campaign promises were also um, one of the differences from the like original presidency to now. Um, so is this just something they didn't account for party differences? I know Madison had the thing about not wanting factions. Do so they really think this wasn't going to happen and that's why um, party differences can play in? Or is there just some like theoretical shift that has allowed this to happen? Well, Jimmy, you're, you're right that they didn't envision parties and they didn't envision the effect that parties would have on the separation of powers. Um, but, you know, parties, the, the existence of parties by themselves doesn't explain why presidents are now making promises. So I, the way to think about the office is originally you're running for presidency on the basis of your resume and your, the sense that you are a wise person and who makes, you know, uh, who, who deliberates and, and makes wise choices. You're, you're running on your resume. You're not running on a policy platform of everybody gets a chicken and everybody gets two, a two car garage and everybody gets a tax cut and every, you know, we're going to stop abortion or we're going to stop guns. Um, and so if you look at early, early uh, presidential contests, there, there are people, there, there are politicians who want to be president, but they don't actively campaign and they aren't making promises. And in the book, you know, the living presidency, I describe what I, what I take to be sort of the earliest promises. And one of the earliest promises is by uh, William Henry Harrison. And he says, we shouldn't be making promises, but I promise to run only one term. And so it's this weird situation where he kind of realizes that people expect kind of you know, promises to be made. He thinks it's a bad idea, but then he promises to run only one term because he understands that his constituents you know, in, so, in some way believe in a more limited presidency and they believe in, you know, a president should only serve one term. He was a Whig. So that changes over time as presidents are, you know, understand that they um, are catering to, to voters. Because mm -hmm. remember the original system is an electoral college, right? And the electoral college system um, is not necessarily uh, to be decided by voters. That is to say, the states decide how electors are selected. And in the initial several elections, lots of states choose the electors themselves. That is say the legislators in the states just appoint the electors. And the people don't have any say in that. It's a mixed system where some states are using the popular vote and some states are just appointing. Well, in that contest, you know, you don't need to appeal to people because the people don't, don't directly matter in the way that they do today, right? Um, Today, a state's electoral votes are generally apportioned by the majority vote in the state. And in that context, it makes a lot of sense um, why you would cater to the preferences of, of voters. That system, you know, where there was a mixed system of state selection versus popular selection or state legislative selection versus popular selection gradually moves towards a system where it's all popular selection, which is what we have today. And in that context, it makes sense that you would then try to cater to these people and make promises. And so today, when we think of you know elections, there's tons of promises being made, right? And that has a corrupting effect on the executive because the executive no longer thinks of themselves as just 
or primarily about executing the wishes of Congress as reflected in statutes, they see themselves as someone who ran on a platform, they came to office, and now they should be able to enact their platform, right? The so-called popular mandate. And, you know, you can imagine if a Supreme Court justice made a bunch of promises mm-hmm. prior to being appointed, they might feel pressure to fulfill them. And that's the same thing that, that influences the president. If I say I'm going to reform immigration and I, don't have, I haven't done it yet, I'm going to press to do something unilaterally. If I say I'm going to build a wall and I haven't been able to do it, I'm going to act unilaterally. And that's the reason why both of our presidents took measures you know, related immigration and the wall that were that were controversial. So is this a problem, this increase in presidential power or acting unilaterally? Um, is this a, a problem that we're facing right now? Or is this just um, a different kind of version of the Constitution or something like that? Um, and if it is a problem, what do we do about that? So in the book, I argue it's a problem because there's no logical stopping point to the changes to the presidency. That is to say, you could imagine that all the changes that have occurred thus far, i.e. a parallel power to declare war, circumvention of the treaty clause, greater authority in foreign affairs, and a unfaithful execution of the law and a a lawmaking presidency. You can imagine that each of those changes are actually good things, right? In in which case you might say, well, you're describing all these things. Um, I think you're implying that it's bad, but I actually think it's good. Someone could, someone could think that. And, you know, I don't, I don't spend a ton of time trying to suggest that it's bad, although you can tell that I do think it's bad. But one of the more general points of the book is there's no limit, there's no ending point to these changes, right? So if you had asked someone 100 years ago, do you think the president could uh, wage war on his own authority? The answer would just be no, right? Anybody who read the Constitution would say no, but that's no longer the case. Um, and so the, the changes that have been wrought to the presidency by our presidents, by our expectations of our presidents, and by, you know, by the acquiescence or the negligence of Congress, um, these changes are revolutionary, and nothing is to prevent further revolutionary changes, right? And so whatever you think the president can't do today can be done by future presidents with practice. That is to say, if they just do it enough times, it it re uh, it 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 sort of modifies our conception of the presidency, and and those of us who live through it can understand that, right? Because we remember what it was and what it's become. Um, but you know, the new generation just knows what it is and not what it was, uh, and and so you know, it's it's sort of more obscure to them. So I think it's a problem that the Constitution can be changed by rather informal mechanisms um, in, you know, in ways that favor the president, right? Because it, it makes the, it makes this one office sort of supremely powerful. And it's not a, you know, it, we have a separation of powers that we're supposed to, and that separation of powers will erode further the more presidents are able to modify their uh, office uh, by using this technique. I just want to speak on the concept of like declaring war. To my understanding, we haven't actually declared war for a lot of the recent wars. Like, I don't believe we officially declared war for Afghanistan or just most of the recent conflicts. How is that allowed to happen if it's technically 
Congress's power to declare the war. So this is, this. there's sort of two common misconceptions, I think. One is sort of statutory and one is constitutional. Let me, let me talk about the statutory stuff first. So in, in 2001, Congress passed something called the Authorization to Use Military Force mm -hmm. in Afghanistan. And then in 2002, they passed the Authorization to Use Military Force uh, vis-a-vis Iraq. And the first one wasn't, didn't mention Afghanistan, but it was clearly about Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. And the second one it was clearly about Iraq. And I view those statutes as exercises of Congress's power to declare war. Yeah. Um, that is to say, they were Congress authorized the warfare. Um, so that's the statutory part that you know that you know we there actually were statutes that Congress passed that authorized the president to use military force, and our continued presence presence in Iraq and Afghanistan is arguably. Uh, sanctified by those statutes. The constitutional mistake is to imagine that Congress has to use the word or phrase declare war in order to exercise the power. And so in the 18th century, if you passed a resolution saying we will wage war, that was a declaration of war, right? right? You had done everything you needed to do. Um, and so when people say, oh, we haven't declared war since uh, World War II, they're using that phrase in a way that's inconsistent with how it's used in the Constitution. What they're saying is we haven't used the exact phrase, we declare war, but we've you know, done the equivalent numerous times. And then I'd say one final thing. In the 18th century, you could declare war via your words or your acts, mm -hmm. which means if you invaded a foreign nation, you have or you had declared war against them. Because that's just as obvious a decision to wage war as a piece of paper would be. And, and they understood this in the 18th century. There was an English prime minister in the early part of the 18th century who said, of late, most of our declarations have issued from the mouths of cannons. Mm -hmm. What he meant was we declare war by just starting it. So, Congress has the power to declare war, which means it has the power to decide whether to wage it. It has to exercise that by bicameralism presentment, right? Mm -hmm. The implication of that grant to the Congress is that the president can't either state, use the phrase, I declare war, nor can he just start a war because if he starts a war, he has declared war. And that's why at the founding, Washington, Hamilton, Jefferson, and a bunch of other people said the president can't start a war because Congress has the power to declare war. So as the constitution uses the phrase declare war, there is no such thing as a, an undeclared war. All wars are declared. And the question is who is declaring them on behalf of the United States? Is it Congress as the constitution requires or is it the president, right? Which is, which as I, as I just said is forbidden. Because if you're fighting a war, you've decided to wage it, if you follow what I'm saying. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, also, so how has the concept of a living constitution affected presidential power? I think the living constitution idea, which is very, uh, you know, uh, um, fashionable uh, amongst certain portions of the, ac the academy and the electorate, I think has contributed greatly to the expansion of presidential power. 
the idea of a living constitution, I think, is something to the effect that even though the words in the constitution don't change, we can attach new meanings to those words to reflect modern morality, modern sensibilities, modern conceptions of the ideal separation of powers, um, sort of update the constitution without going through a formal process. And my argument in the paper is that if you have this view, you're really empowering uh, the presidency in the book, right? The living presidency. You're really empowering the presidency because the president, uh, presidents are best able to uh, create uh, and act upon new conceptions, either of the constitution uh, or of presidential power in particular. And so the living constitution greatly favors the presidency. It, it creates a living presidency, right? Um, because the, if, if the powers of Congress can change over time or the first amendment's meaning can change over time, why not uh, article two and the president's authorities and why not uh, the president's duties, right? Why can't they shrink over time as they in fact have done? And so the, the book is in part meant to push back against the idea um, that the living constitution is a good idea, but it's also meant to get progressives to think of a, to, to understand that there's a contradiction here. Progressives have been um, one of the most uh, eloquent voices against the imperial presidency. Mm -hmm. And the book is basically pointing out the living, the imperial presidency is just another phrase for the living presidency. And so, uh, you know, it can't be that the presidency alone has to be straitjacketed in some way, but Congress or the, and the judiciary and rights can, can change in various ways, but the presidency cannot. So if you really believe in a living constitution, you have to be open to the idea of an imperial or living presidency. And if you find the, the idea of an imperial presidency problematic, then you, re you need to rethink your commitment to a living constitution, right? Because they go hand in hand. And of course, presidents have been one of the prominent engines of constitutional change with respect not only to the presidency, but with respect to other parts of the constitution. So, you know, maybe your, your, our viewers are aware of Franklin Roosevelt's uh, railing against the court. He said, why must we be wed to a, a horse and buggy conception of the Commerce Clause? And he was referring to the courts, you know, his, his sense that the court had adopted a, an old-fashioned view of the Commerce Clause. Well, you know, I, I say in the, the book, well, then why is the presidency limited to a quill and cannon conception of the presidency? And the answer is, he's not going to be once you decide that the, the other things in the Constitution can change, of course, uh, the presidency can as well. And I'll, I'll mention one final thing. Woodrow Wilson was a big proponent of a, a Darwinian organic living organism perspective of the Constitution. And he talked about how the presidency had evolved over time. But then he also said there are certain things that just can't be done. The president can't misconstrue statutes and he, he shouldn't, you know, misconstrue them to advance his policy goals. And I point out that this, this position is incoherent, right? Because either you believe that the presidency can change over time, in which case there are no, 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 no go, no, there are no forbidden, forbidden areas, or you don't, and you can't, you know, just because you think it's 
not proper for a president to misconstrue statutes doesn't mean that other people can't disagree once you adopt the idea that the, the presidency and the constitution is this organic creature that ought to change, shrink and expand in various ways over time. So it's sort of like if you're in for a penny with respect to the living constitution, you're in for a pound. Right. So you can just take like a complete, like, let's go by the constitution view on one thing and then say like, I believe in the living constitution and another thing, it's just contradictory. Well, I, I would say this, you can, you can, you can have this view, uh, it needs to be defended. And then it turns out you need to reject a lot of modern aspects of the presidency, right? right? Like the president's greater authority to make international agreements without the Senate's consent, the president's authority to wage war, president's authority to you know create law interstitial law or otherwise or misread statutes and there are people who are willing to i think you know jettison some aspects of this but they have other commitments that make them embrace other aspects of it so for instance if you're an inner you know if you if you're a fan of international law and multilateral agreements and you know the idea of of you know enmeshing the United States in international law, you're going to favor a system that makes it easier for the president to make uh, international agreements without going to the Senate. Um, so you're not going to want to get rid of that innovation. But then what, you know, how are you going to differentiate war powers from, from these international agreements? And look, you can, you, can, you can draw distinctions, right? And say, well, war is different than treaties, and here's why. But, but I think ultimately the, the power of practice, um, which just sort of says, you know, if we do something repeatedly, it just sort of becomes embedded into our constitution. And, and attempts to dismiss that practice are uh, tilting at windmills, let's put it that way. That, that argument is just so powerful, it, it overrides any attempt to constrain the president, right? Including in war powers. But we've had presidents wage war on their own say so for you know 50 60 plus years going back to korea and every president has either waged war not every president, but many presidents have either waged war or you know basically attacked other nations right, right. with you know syrian attacks by trump and and then a libyan war by by obama as the most recent examples right um so just to wrap up, since we are a student-run podcast, do you have any last words on law school and finding your path with a law degree? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I, think, I think law school uh, is a great, you know, is a great thing. I, you know, I loved law school. I think, you know, you can do a lot of things with a law degree. You can go into law. <laughs> you can go into politics, you can go into business, um, you know, you can go into teaching as I have done. Um, so I'm a great fan of the law degree. Uh, it's obviously not for everybody. I, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to say that it is. Um, just like, you know, being a doctor isn't for everybody. If you don't like blood, probably shouldn't be a doctor. If you don't like reading things very carefully and making arguments, and making distinctions, then maybe you shouldn't be going to law school, right? Because that's what part of what uh, being a lawyer is all about. Um, so I, I, you know, I think it's a uh, it's a great degree, and you know, we have a wonderful law school at Virginia. So Northwestern's a great law school. There's tons of great law schools. Um, you know, in this market, 
Um, in this economy, I would, you know, think long and hard about going to a school that has difficulty placing their students in jobs because it's only going to get more difficult if the economy continues to stumble. Um, you know, schools like Northwestern and Virginia and, you know, uh, other schools of that caliber, I think, have a better time of placing their students. So what I'm saying is don't, you know, I, I would be wary of a place that uh, is more marginal. But you've got to you've got to look at your options, right? If you know, I think a lot of some people go to law school because they just don't know what else to do. And in this economy, if you don't have a job, it might be your best option. But remember, you're taking on, you know, a lot of money, uh, a lot of tuition. And then you have to think about that, right? Like, you know, suppose you get into Virginia, you know, so, well, I won't use Virginia, but suppose you get into Columbia, yeah. but you're offered a full ride at Northwestern or Texas. Maybe you go to Northwestern or Texas, right? Because you don't have any debt if you go to those schools and the, you know, the admission to Columbia and the scholarship at Northwestern or, or Texas is telling you they think you're gonna be a good student and you're gonna do well, which should also tell you if, if they're right and if you continue to work hard that you'll be able to get a job you know, at, a, at a top flight firm when you leave. So I, I think the legal, you know, the legal profession uh, is, a, is a great path. I think a law degree is a great path for many different jobs. Um, uh, so that's my view, you know, but it makes sense because I'm kind of in the field. I'm selling something, you know, I'm, I'm selling you a car. Why don't you, know, of course, I'm going to think a car is a great thing. So, you know, understand that I'm a little biased. Right. Um, those are really great points that I'm sure everyone at home will love to hear. And then just to wrap up, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Um, if you're listening, check us out at the nulj.org and look for Professor Prakash's book, The Living Presidency, which I will link to this podcast and on our website. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much, Jamie. And yeah, get that book. You, you won't be disappointed. Thank you so much.